You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jean-Michel Cousteau is a French explorer, environmentalist, educator, and film producer. He's the first son of ocean explorer Jacques-Yves Cousteau, and he founded Ocean Future Society in 1999 to carry on this pioneering work. Thank you for joining me, Jean-Michel. You're very welcome. Jean, you've led a, a life that's practically mythic, and I want to take you back to a time when you were a small child and your father strapped a piece of experimental equipment on your back and turned you into a guinea pig. Tell us about your first immersion underwater. Well, you know, my dad at the time was uh, in the French Navy, and uh, it was during the Second World War where he uh, uh, was going back and forth from Paris down to south of France, and uh, he had this obsession of wanting to see what's, what was under the keel of his ship. And uh, that's when he co-invented the uh, regulator, which is part of the diving equipment, or the scuba, as we call it today. And uh, he was uh, testing it first in Paris in the river. And when he realized that it was working, he took the equipment down in south of France. And uh, he, uh, when he had time off, he had some of his colleagues uh, try it, and it worked. And then he decided, I'm going to put that on the back of my families uh, uh, to uh, have them share my uh, excitement and wanting to discover what's there. So my mother was there, and she had a tank on her back. My brother was four and a half at the time, and I was seven. And uh, we had no certification whatsoever. I mean, it makes people laugh today, but uh, there was no um, way of getting certification in those days. And so we, as a family, we um, literally almost every weekend and holidays and vacations, we would explore the French Riviera. And uh, for me, it was a very natural thing to do. I don't even remember being in trouble or, or hesitating or being scared or whatever. But I was fascinated by the amount of uh, the fish that uh, were all over the place. And I noticed early on uh, some debris, some garbage, uh, and my frustration, I think, uh, and I'm very grateful to my dad to have done uh, that when we were that young to put us underwater, uh, is that there were less and less or fewer and fewer fish and more and more garbage. And I, I have that image in my mind, which uh, uh, I know I was shocked, frustrated, and I didn't know what to do. Because, uh, you know, I was a kid, and I was going to school, and I used to fish in those days. Uh, I used to uh, even catch uh, octopus, uh, sometimes even without getting wet. I would lift a rock, and here it was, and I would pick it up, and I would treat it like I saw other fishermen do it. And I would even sell it uh, sometimes to... Uh, a police officer who, who loved octopus, and he would give me, you know, the equivalent of maybe a dollar so I could go and buy myself marbles or candies. And that's what it was when I was a little kid. You know, it strikes me that it's clear that that vision of the difference between the surface and, and what's underneath and the relationship 
between the surface and what was underneath has colored your vision of this world from the very beginning and I think led you to where you are today, clearly. Well, yes, and, and, and again, going back to my dad, uh, what really got to him is that one of his colleagues gave him a, a mask, uh, which was homemade, and uh, he went in the water in the harbor uh, where his ship was in Toulon, south of France, and half, half of uh, uh, the vision was above water and the other half below water, and he could see fish underwater and cars on the pier moving on the upper part of the mask. And for him, that was a turning point. And I've never forgotten that image, and sometimes I do it, just, just to repeat what got to him. Um, and that curiosity uh, started there. And uh, a sense of discovery, wanting to know what's over there, uh, and, and that became what led my dad to ultimately uh, resign from the Navy and totally dedicate himself to discovery what's below the surface. And uh, people would ask you, well, Captain, uh, what do you expect to find? And the answer was, if I knew, I wouldn't go. And so that sense of discovery, adventure, uh, was really... Uh, ingrained into all of us uh, and then it became a big team or you know maybe 20 people when we were on uh, Calypso and uh, one thing led to another and so we started exploring locally in the Mediterranean Sea and then it was the Red Sea and then it was you know a little bit of the Indian Ocean and then it was the Atlantic and finally the Pacific and uh, that's why I'm here because we know nothing and uh, we have still so much to discover We've only scratched the surface. And here we are using the ocean as a universal sewer or garbage uh, uh, place. And uh, we're destroying coastal habitats. We are overfishing. And we, we're nuts. We, we're really hurting ourselves. And uh, we need to be become better manager and stop affecting our, our life support system, which is the ocean. And I keep telling people, you know, if you... Uh, up in the, in the Rockies and you're going skiing, you're skiing on the ocean. And next time you have a drink of water, you're drinking the ocean. I mean, everything's connected. And uh, there's one water system, and whether it's fresh water, salt water, uh, ice, vapor, or whatever, it's all the same water system. So there's no life with, no, with water, and if the water's quality is not good, we're going to be sick. So we need to keep that in mind. And every action that we take, whether it's individually, and there's a lot we can do, because if you put millions and millions of people doing the right thing, then it's going to help uh, tremendously. And then uh, we need to educate governments. We need to educate industries. And, and we can do that. We can help. And, and that's, I think, what uh, the objective of Ocean Future Society is to do, which is to start in the school system uh, and go on all the way to the decision makers, whether they are in government or industries. You know, um, one of the things that makes it, I think, so easy for us humans to use the, the oceans the way we do is because we can't see what happens. And I think that's one of the prime parts that people like yourself play is to bring us a vision and show us the both the beauty and the majesty of what's under there, and also the impact of what of what we're doing. So, uh, 
and the way you have to have had to do that has just changed enormously. When you were talking about 1945, uh, diving in, in the harbor, you know, what you had was, uh, um, you know, you could only show your mask. Talk about how you and, and your family have developed a whole technology and worked with people who developed a whole technology over the years. It's just been a phenomenal sea change, as it were. <laughs> Well, it's a sense of, uh, the sense of adventure and discovery uh, leads you to say, okay, I need a piece of equipment. I need a camera. I need uh, to be able to uh, stay longer. I need to go deeper and so on. And there again, I learned that from my dad, is to never say, uh, take no for an answer. If uh, a piece of equipment doesn't exist, well, design it. Make it happen. And, and, and that's how uh, underwater photography, cinematography, uh, uh, staying longer and being protected from pressure, which led you to uh, be in a submersible. Uh, my dad designed the first non-military submersible, which uh, was at the time jet-propelled. It was called a diving saucer. Uh, and then he built uh, five other submersibles since then, including one for the U.S., uh, and then uh, he said, well, this is great to be in the submersible, but I don't feel and sense things because I'm protected. So he, he started working on under, underwater habitats. And I was a teenager when that happened, and that's why I became an architect, because I said, one day people are going to move underwater, and I want to be the first architect to build cities underwater. That was my obsession as a, you know, 16, 18 years old. And uh, so... I'm a licensed architect in the European Union. Today, I could uh, forget about the ocean and go and build, I don't know, uh, hospitals in Europe. But uh, all of that comes from the fact that uh, he never took no for an answer. And in as much as we uh, put a label on my dad as an inventor, uh, he became an inventor by necessity. Uh, and that was uh, led by his sense of adventure and wanting to know, you know, what's on the other side of the hill? And if you don't have the equipment, well, you make it. You create it. And uh, that, that was, to me, a great inspiration, and I've attempted to follow that model. And we've done a few things ourselves, you know, with a full-face mask, with... Uh, uh, when we were using film, we had also video, which allowed the uh, camera operator to uh, uh, play back underwater to see what they had shot right then, and uh, then, then video became the thing to do, and so we didn't need film anymore. But, uh, you know, it's just on and on and on. And um, we know very, very little about the ocean. We have a long way to go, and I think if we have explored five percent maybe uh, that's it so what about the other 95 percent and uh, how many species we have yet to discover how many uh, plants and maybe drugs uh, that can uh, help us take care of some of our problems or disease or whatever um, are still out there for us to discover uh, it, it's uh, it's a mystery, it's, and it's very exciting. And I, I think young people today uh, should not be blasé by the uh, the abundance of uh, 
uh, garbage that is being thrown at them, whether it's advertising, very poor shows. Uh, uh, reality today is, is more exciting than fiction. Oh, and absolutely. We need to discover that, you know. Well, one of the things that uh, struck me when you were talking about the the species we might discover, the plants we might discover, is that our vision of the ocean has, up till almost very recently, been somewhat monolithic in that maybe there's rocks down there, there's something going off the rocks, or there's sand. But there's, you know, we've never until recently, I think, thought of the ocean as having as diverse a, a series of environments as we have above land. But with the discovery of some of these uh, hydrothermic vents, uh, there are really vastly different and very unique uh, microecologies under the ocean, aren't there? Yes, and uh, I, I can uh, add to this the, the fact that today uh, when we're having uh, uh, more and more pressure on our traditional uh, sources of energy, such as oil, uh, forgetting about that for a second, you, you have all kinds of people looking at alternate sources of energy. And we often, we talk about the wind, we talk about the, uh, the sun. Okay, this, this is heading in the right direction and uh, will become very, very commercially available in the near future. But when it comes to the ocean, you have other ways. And there are people today who are uh, trying to uh, find the best way of capturing the energy created by currents, for example, or the difference of temperature from deep deep water, which are very, very cold, and warm water uh, at the surface. Uh, you also have now people who are uh, isolating and farming one-cell plants. And those one-cell plants uh, grow exponentially. They're the fastest-growing plants on the planet. And those plants can provide a source of energy. Those, those one-cell plants can provide oil or a kind of oil which is uh, non-polluting and can be used for propulsion. So much so, I can tell you that pretty soon the United States Air Force is going to have uh, a plane fly on one-cell plant from the ocean. Well, that's a pretty phenomenal in. Uh infiltration of technology from uh, simply looking at the ocean um, outward into the greater society. And that's one of the things I think you and Ocean Futures do very well is to filter and actually more like just pump all that information and a lot of that energy, and I'm talking about personal energy, and also um, the knowledge that you pull out of the ocean and channel it into places where it's unexpected? Well, you know, we, we try to channel it into uh, uh, people's knowledge because ultimately they are the consumers, and uh, if they don't know, they, w they won't do it. Uh, how can you protect what you don't understand? Exactly. And that's uh, what we try to do is to provide the public w in a very easy way to understand the way we all talk and exchange information. Uh, and we know the public is totally prepared to uh, assimilate, understand, and, and ultimately get involved in uh, trying to do the right thing. 
Now, talk about uh, Ocean Futures. Uh, when you went and, and founded that, it's, you know, a marine conservation and educational organization. Um, talk about those two kind of different aspects of it and, and how they feed into one another. Well, first of all, in my opinion, there's no difference. Hmm. Um, we do education, which mm -hmm. is to uh, hopefully get the kids out of school and get them wet. And uh, whether you're near a lake or river or the ocean, it's all the same thing. You're just doing to the kids what your father did to you <coughs> so right. many years ago. That's right. And, uh, and then uh, they can learn a lot faster than if you're sitting in a classroom getting bored. Uh, you know, classroom is like a jail. We need to get them out of there and, and give them a sense of uh, the world we live in and understand how we connected to it. And, and they love that. I mean, the kids love to feel, sense, and smell, and touch, and so on. So <clears throat> that uh, goes through our Ambassador of the Environment program because when they're done, they have a job to do. They are the ambassadors. They're going home. They're going to share it with their parents. They're teaching the parents. And we also have uh, another program, which is, to, which is called uh, Sustainable Reef, where the educational material is made available to them uh, to um, better understand how that functions. Now we're going to the, uh, the roots of the oceans, like uh, in the Amazon, and I call it sustainable rainforest. So that's the educational side. Now, you, you get away from this, and I, I do a lot of presentations, uh, lectures, and so on. Same thing. It's maybe more uh, concentrated and more superficial because you don't have as much time as you do when you spend a week with, uh, with kids. And then we go and meet with the decision makers whether they are in industry or governments, uh, and we share the information with them. It's the same information. We have less time to do it, but at least we pass on uh, some information which will allow them, hopefully, to make better decisions. And so Ocean Features is really whether we make a film, a documentary film, we're teaching or we sitting down with the president of the United States or the president of BP, um, for me, it's the same message. And uh, we know that it works. We know that those people, you know, they're, they're like everybody else. They, they have a family. They have kids. They have a heart. They have a brain. And they, they want to they wanna know. You know, um, one of the things that I think you guys do remarkably well <laughs> is to, um, uh, you've been making movies for a long time. And this is something, you know, your father started. And this is, I think, a really important part of our awareness of what's out there. And But making these kind of movies, it's not like making an action movie or a story or something, though there is a story. Um, talk about your immersion early on in, in, you know, the Calypso years of making these specials for National Geographic. And how that led and informed your career as a producer and narrator and writer and director of films? Well, <clears throat> I think what my dad originally wanted was to share uh, his experience with the public because in those days, I'm talking about 
you know, even the 30s, the late 30s and the 40s and 50s, people didn't travel like they do today. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no uh, communication technology that was available like we have today, whether it's uh, television, the Internet. You know, I grew up uh, as a child. We didn't have television. We had radio. That was it. Mm. We had a telephone, which was at the end of a cable, and there was one telephone, period. <laughs> and my number was 221. Wow. That was my phone <laughs> number. So things have changed in the last 50 years in an amazing way. And we're taking it for granted today when, uh, you know, we, we think that uh, um, all of that is available. But <clears throat> there are now hundreds of television stations and radios and uh, on and on and on. And um, what I think the, uh, the drawback of all of this uh, is that we don't spend enough time smelling, touching, feeling, uh, enjoying, watching nature, whether it's above water or underwater. Uh, we, we need to, to discipline ourselves and not be completely uh, absorbed by some uh, very superficial uh, temptations, which uh, the technology that is available to today is uh, uh, making you want to be part of. And uh, we, we have to discipline ourselves. There's room for both, but it has to be organized and not just uh, uh, drifting into it like I see too many people do. I think that's a really interesting uh, notion that um, the uh, portraits of the experience and media visions of the experience just cannot replace the experience of actually being in near the ocean and understanding it and understanding our impact of the planet. And, and for I think that your biggest challenge as an educator must be to uh, educate the majority of people who don't live on or near the ocean, of the importance of this huge amount of the earth, the majority of the earth is ocean, it's well known, but it's not well felt. Well, um, I, I'm happy to tell you that when I go in the Midwest, for example, I see people, and including adults, who have never seen the ocean. Okay, there are still some of those people there. Mm. They are the most enthusiastic people. They, unlike the coastal people who may be somewhat blasé, uh, they're very curious. They want to know. They get involved. And uh, the reception that I get far away from the ocean is by far superior to those who uh, live near the ocean. So they're thirsty <clears throat> for it. To me, it's pretty exciting. Mm. It's exciting because it means that... In every one of us, there's still this sense of discovery and wanting to know and uh, excitement about the unknown or about what uh, our nature has to offer us and the fact that we can still uh, discover and, and identify what is making us smile and happy, uh, which is what it's all about. Uh, you, you can be in your office and never come out of it uh, if that's your choice. But I feel sorry. 
I feel sorry for you because you, you will never sense, smell, feel, and listen to the birds as they sing the, the way we do when you go in the forest or uh, watch uh, a whale sing underwater. That three three third dimension and uh, contact, physical contact, uh, you cannot get it by uh, being in a room stuck watching your set or your phone or your, you know. It, it, it's something, again, we're back to uh, there's room for both, and we need to discipline ourselves. Now, one of the things that um, interests me is that, you know, we're in the midst of, I think, what is arguably the greatest planetary disaster ever to unfold. And you were there back in 1991 when its equally famous predecessor um, unfolded. Talk about your experience of the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Well, 21 years ago, we were there uh, almost at the beginning of the spill. And uh, we immediately identified the issues where, which uh, were connected to nature. But very quickly, I realized, I said, what about people? And I found out that uh, a lot of people were majorly affected by this catastrophe. And that had to do not only with the fishing industry, had to do with the oil people who were affected by it, had to do with the local people who... Indians who are uh, completely dependent on uh, the resources for their survival from the ocean. And many of them had to move because they couldn't go and get what they needed to survive. And uh, those people are, uh, in a major way, no longer there. And uh, the 21 years later, some of those fishermen are still affected uh, their boat may have been taken away by uh, the bank because they stopped paying their mortgage, and on and on. And uh, so not only the environment is uh, still uh, paying for this mistake, but the people. And uh, what we live in today in the Gulf, 21 years later, is the same thing at a different scale, a much, much bigger scale. And I think we need to uh, learn a lesson from this and change. We can. It's not an issue of saying oh, overnight we're not going to use oil because that's unrealistic. Uh, I wouldn't be able to speak on this microphone uh, if there was no electricity. Where is that coming from? Well, it is oil. And then when I'm going to leave you, I'm going to be in a car. Or I'm driving a car. Okay, it's a, it's a hybrid. Great. Hybrid, well, that means I'm still using oil. And on and on. So let's be realistic. By the same token, we have the opportunity to switch away from it. So as long as we are dependent on the oil, although we will phase it out voluntarily or because there won't be any left, and uh, it's just an issue of time, so we might as well look at other ways. And at the same time, uh, how do we do a better job to prevent and in case of an accident, to be prepared to face up to the accident, which in the, in the case of the, the spill in the Gulf uh, of Mexico was the largest uh, non-military catastrophe man-made ever. And if we're not learning from this, 
and chance. Uh, I have suggested, and I'm open to any good ideas, that we uh, create a commission, which may be under the United Nations, independent from the pressure of politics or the pressure of money, and uh, invite all the industries to obey or to go by the same regulations which has to do with prevention, prevention, prevention. And in case of an accident, we have plan one, two, three to face up to, uh, to that problem. I think it's in the interest of everybody, including the protection of the industries, including the protection of the shareholders who are dependent on the, the uh, uh, profit from those corporations. And when you look at what's happening today with the shareholders of BP, they're mad. They're mad because the profits which normally they would have collected, like they do uh, on a regular basis, is not available anymore. It's being used to repair the damage. And, and they're mad. There are people far away who are now pointing fingers at the United States because you're sitting in your home in London or somewhere in the UK and you're saying, well, those Americans, you know, they did it and I am not going to get my money today. Uh, we're all in the same boat, so to speak, and same planet anyway, and we better change, and we can. It's a, the point is we're not pointing fingers here. We're saying there are solutions. There are better ways of managing ourselves, and we can do it. Uh, and um, I think Ocean Futures is trying to point in those directions and by working with whoever can make a difference, and that starts with every one of us. You know, it, it strikes me that when I think back to that Valdez accident, one of the things that was so powerful about it was the place where it unfolded was pristine up to that point. It was just a, a beautiful natural wasteland and the effect of what had happened was immediately and powerfully visible on the surface. Here uh, they've used dispersants to keep the oil under the surface. Now you talk about something called the water column. Explain what the water column is and where this oil is in the water column. Well, at the Exxon Valdez, they did use some dispersant too, a uh, different kind. And today I can give you a shovel, and you can go on the beach, and 30 uh, centimeters, a foot below the surface, the oil is still there. Uh, so it, it is still affecting the environment. When it comes to the Gulf, uh, you're talking about a, a spill that took place at one mile below the surface. Okay, So that creates a problem because you cannot have physical human access there. It's too deep. So it's all remote. And uh, when they released the dispersant there, it was to fundamentally keep it in the water rather than have it at the surface. Mm -hmm. Because when it reaches the surface, a lot of it evaporates, goes in, in the air. And that's when they started burning it, which has many, many other effects on uh, for example, the air we breathe, the air that the dolphins, the whales, the turtles are breathing. And um, so all, all of that is an issue. And by keeping the uh, oil below the surface, 
uh, people feel better because it's out of sight, out of mind. And if the entire water column uh, is affected, it was the presence of the chemicals and the oil, what is that going to do to the chain of life, the uh, uh, plankton, uh, which is very critical to foundations of all forms of life in the ocean? And that leads to small fish and bigger fish and uh, animals that feed upon it and all kinds of plants that uh, are also uh, depending on, on uh, that, that clean water for their survival. So <clears throat> I think it was a huge mistake, uh, which was made with uh, chemicals which are not allowed in Europe, uh, that this person. And when you dig in, you find out, you know, there was a lot of pressures from uh, the people who own that product uh, to have it being used so they could make money. And they made a lot of money, I'm sure. Millions and millions and millions of dollars have been pocketed by those people. But um, our system has to change. The system has to be modified so we, we can prevent that, for, that from happening. Uh, we were caught... Uh, in the Gulf by surprise, like we were caught by surprise in uh, Prince William Sound with the Exxon Valdez. So we, I don't believe we've learned anything in 21 years. Now it's time to change. We, have, we need to take this opportunity, this major catastrophe, as an opportunity to change. And we can. You know, it's not like... Uh, I really don't believe it's going to be business as usual anymore. I think it's a wake-up call. And I'm on the side of uh, the industry because I'm not a hypocrite. But I want them to change. And in, in the name of the people who have been affected, hundreds of thousands of people, fishermen, hotels, restaurants, gift shops, uh, taxi cab drivers, everybody has been affected. Uh, we need to change. And we can. You're currently working on a film about this uh, disaster. Could you talk about the challenges of filming this and bringing this vision? Because I, even the pictures that they showed us of that thing when it was spouting were kind of almost too ugly to look at. And a lot of the uh, images of the aftermath, too, were so horrific, your mind kind of had to turn away. How, when you're showing something, as you said, the biggest non-military catastrophe in the history of man, how do you show that in a way that doesn't just force the, turn the audience away, but instead inspires them to take on that never take no for an answer spirit that your father instilled in you? Well, first of all, uh, it's a matter of uh, how much people can take. And you have to take that into account. Indeed, you don't want them to turn their back and walk away. So it's a constant uh, test. And you have to listen to the public. How much can they take and how much can they learn from it? And that's what we do all the time. Obviously, we could be... Uh, very, very shocking, but then we're going to lose our audience. And 
we're trying to make people change. We're not trying to make people uh, react in a nasty, aggressive way by wanting to uh, blow up uh, the, the government or blow up the, uh, the industries. That's not the point. That's not how we're going to resolve it. So you have to have uh, the public on your side, and uh, we're on their side, obviously. So it, it's, a, it's a touchy decision. Every, every cut you make uh, in, in your show is to uh, uh, make them realize, make the public realize that uh, this is the information that will help you make a better decision every day on your actions, on what you're going to buy, on uh, who you're going to support, on... Uh, uh, what, what is the best product that you think uh, can make you happy and, and have the least impact on the environment, uh, and on and on. So that's our job. It's, it's, a, it's psychologically very interesting from my point of view. Uh, and sometimes, you know, we have uh, even some of our uh, team members saying, well, why don't we show that? And we have to say, no, we can't do that. Uh, it is tough, but we have to deal with realities. And uh, realities is not necessarily, at, at least in our position, is to, to shock people to the point where they, they, they want revenge. It's, that's no good. Revenge is no good. It's uh, doing the right thing that uh, we try to inspire. You know, I read a report a couple of days ago where it, wherein it was claimed that a previously undiscovered bacteria had consumed most of the oil plume? Is, what do you know about that, and is that even possible? Well, uh, that's still a question. Uh, it's, being, uh, it's very recent, and uh, that question is still uh, uh, to be uh, looked into very, very carefully. And uh, I am not a scientist. Uh, I'm not a chemist. And I certainly will not make judgment uh, without having uh, the evidence. And so we, we have to rely on, on specialists. And there are a lot of scientists who are looking into this today. Uh, I'm very anxious to know what they're going to come up with. Uh, obviously, if there are solutions, hey, <laughs> that's all we want. But <clears throat> I'm a little skeptical, I have to say, because... Uh, we have a tendency to jump to conclusions without really having uh, all the information that we need to have before you can make a statement. And uh, even today, I guess a bipartisan commission decided that it was safe to continue uh, offshore oil drilling. Do you think it's safe? Do you think we should stop? Or, or do you think we, is there a way we can, you know, take this time to reinform ourselves of the risks? Well, as I said earlier, we, uh, we need to have uh, a better system in place, uh, such as the commission that I suggested, where you have uh, prevention, 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 in case of an accident, ABC, which was not the case with the BP catastrophe. Okay? Uh, there were shortcuts taken. It was not essentially an issue of uh, mechanical problems. It was decision-making. We allowed ourselves to make the wrong decisions. And that led to this major catastrophe. So we, we need to keep that in mind. It's not the failure of the equipment. It's the failure of 
of decisions. That's what happened there. Uh, this being said, we need to uh, be very careful because the deeper you go, the more difficult it gets. And it is expensive, and we need to realize that we are not, when you put gasoline in your car, you're not paying the real price. What is the real price? And uh, all of that has to be taken into account, and I think that's what's leading us in the direction of alternate sources of energy, and we are getting there. So it's a time issue. And of course, the faster we can get there properly, the better off we're going to be. <clears throat> in the end, it's, it's uh, what's best for us. And it starts by what's best for the environment. You know, all this uh, notice that we put into the, the BP oil disaster is also a good distraction from some of the ongoing problems with the ocean. And I'm thinking of the Pacific Gyre and the newly formed uh, Atlantic Gyre, uh, the, the plastic garbage islands. And I, I think that these are uh, places where, uh, again, the vision that people like uh, Ocean Futures can bring to us can really help us change our behavior on an individual level. You said earlier, one person making a change is, is admirable, but when millions of persons make the same change, it uh, has an impact. Well, that, that's what we tried to do, and uh, I believe in a way somewhat successfully when we uh, went long before everybody was talking about the Pacific Gyre. We were in the middle of the Pacific Gyre when we went to the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands. And the, the consequences of uh, our using the ocean as a garbage can, uh, we could measure there because all of that stuff ends up on those islands. And here we were with at least 52 countries represented, including France, uh, in the middle of the Pacific, 3,000 miles away from the mainland or from uh, Japan. Well, what does that mean? That means that uh, anyone, if you're in Kansas City, in the middle of the country, and you, you take your cigarette lighter, on which the name of the company uh, that manufacture it is written, and you throw it over your shoulder because it's empty, and you think, you know, out of sight, out of mind, it's going to make its way into a little streams, into the river, into the Missouri, into the Mississippi, and it's going to end up in the Gulf, and ultimately into the Atlantic. So one has to understand that, uh, you know, here in California, it's going to end up in the Pacific. So <clears throat> everything is connected. So it's, it's an issue of stopping to have the, what I call the monkey reflex. Uh, when a monkey throw a banana peel away, it's going to help a tree to grow. Uh, when we throw a cigarette lighter or toothbrush or mascara or the bottle top, it's going to end up somewhere, and unfortunately, it floats usually, and it's going to end up in some ocean, some water system, and it's affecting it. It's affecting it in many, many ways. Uh, when, when you see uh, the amount of these uh, plastic debris that uh, we find in the stomach of uh, baby birds who haven't yet had a chance to fly, and they die with eight to 12 pieces of plastic or other objects in their stomach. 
then you start to think. And I would suspect that that's what made the president, President Bush, when he screened at the White House or two hours of film uh, and saw that, uh, make the decision to protect that part of the world and turn it into a, a marine national monument. And that leads us to uh, the near future where hopefully uh, UNESCO is going to turn that part of the world into a, a world heritage. I mean, again, it's all visual. Mm -hmm. It's uh, being able to reach the people who can make a difference and show them it's not an issue of pointing fingers and accusing anybody. It's saying, look what we're doing to ourselves. How can we change that? And we can. Uh, whatever you dispose of th things can be recycled. When you look at a, uh, a uh, homeless person in New York or in Paris or Los Angeles, pick up a, uh, uh, a can in a garbage uh, place, they, why do they do that? They do that not because they are environmentally concerned. They do that because they're going to make money. What does that mean? That means we throw money away, mm -hmm. every one of us. And those people benefit from that to make a living or survival. And you know what they've done in New York now? They put locks on the garbage uh, uh, places because they realize that the, the city uh, can make money by recycling what's, what we disposed of. So we're putting homeless people out of business <laughs> in a way. But, you know, we need to learn from those, those experiences. We throw money away every day. And when you consume between 1,000 1,200 plastic bags to go shopping and, and then you throw them away, you're throwing away not only money but materials that can hurt the environment, can choke to death the turtle in the ocean because they think it's a jellyfish and they're going to eat it or swallow it. And we, <laughs> we can change that. And I tell you one thing. When I go to my uh, shopping place today with my bag, which I keep all the time, every time they give me five cents. And they save five cents too because they don't have to give me a plastic bag or two plastic bags. And at the end of the year, with the same income, I have improved my standard of living by saving 60 70 $80. I can invite you and we can have a really nice dinner which I couldn't do before. So everyone can change and, and improve their standard of living, and by the same token, oh, wow, I'm helping. I'm helping not to hurt and damage nature, the environment, our life support system. You know, uh, Ocean Futures is an international concern with offices in France, Italy, Santa Barbara. Talk about coordinating an international... Uh, effort independent of the governments of the countries where you work? Well, the fact that we have these offices is uh, almost symbolic because uh, with the technology of communication today, you, you can do that very easily. But uh, it's also a way of adapting to the local needs which are different from one region to another. 
And that's why we have an office also in, in Brazil, because uh, we tend to forget about half of the planet, which happens to be south of the equator, <laughs> right? And <laughs> when you're dealing with countries like uh, Brazil, well, it's uh, two, 200,000 uh, 200, uh, uh, um, million people there, which is two-thirds of the United States. Uh, you're dealing with a country which is energy independent. You're dealing with a country that has tremendous potential. You're dealing with a country that uh, has uh, a 65% of the Amazon, uh, which is as big, uh, as big as continental United States and has a major impact on the weather, on uh, the water that goes into the Atlantic, and on and on and on. So uh, we feel that um, having antennas like this is a way of saying that we're looking at the planet globally and we're not just an American company uh, trying to tell the world what to do. Uh, we're only 5% of the world's population here. And we have a tendency, as we consume 25% of the world's energy, to dictate to the rest of the world what to do. Well, that was okay up to now, but now, uh -uh. There's a lot of resistance, and instead of uh, having confrontation, we need to work together. And when we accuse China uh, of uh, emitting more CO2 than the United States, come on, let's be realist. There are four times more people in China, which means they consume four times less than we do, uh, and on and on. So. <laughs> there's only one world. There's one, you know, you look at the, the planet from space, at, I don't see any borders. Mm. Uh, and, and we have to deal with this. Uh, there's one ocean, one water system, one land mass, and, uh, and one people. And I, um, I was very excited when I was invited to create the, uh, the ocean passports. Because I realized that uh, whales, you know, when they go from Mexico to California to, uh, to uh, uh, Canada, they, there's nobody checking them at the border. Well, what about us? Uh, so we, ha we need to start thinking globally. And uh, I think we're heading that way. I mean, Western Europe woke up and, you know, you have 27 countries now in the European Union. You can drive from one country to the other. Nobody's going to check you. So um, that's, I think, where we're heading today. And uh, it, it may be a little complex, but I think we're making major headways. I've been speaking with Jean-Michel Cousteau. He's the founder of the Ocean Futures Organization. Thank you for joining me, Jean-Michel. You're very welcome. I hope uh, that uh, this will inspire people to uh, realize that they can make a difference for themselves, for their family, and within their own community and their own nation. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>